This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I'm joined by Stuart Bowman, a lead scientific simulations engineer at MITRE, which hopefully we will learn more about today in our conversation. So Stuart, first, welcome to RSC Stories. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. And thanks for doing these interviews. This is a pretty awesome way to get the community energized and understanding the diversity of the kind of work we do. I totally agree. Before we jump into your story, I said this strange term, MITRE, and I want to put into people's heads an idea of exactly what that is before we start getting distracted and talking about other things. So without <laughs> going too much into your specific role yet, could you give us a high level understanding of what MITRE is? Yeah, sure. MITRE is a nonprofit technology company that works in the public interest, trying to solve problems that are of scientific interest for the public. So we partner with what are frequently called the three-letter agencies, the executive office, and we work with those three-letter agencies. And I'm talking about things like the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. We partner with them, talk to them about what their biggest technology research problems are. Then we go off and work on them and turn in reports and that sort of thing. Occasionally, we also will copyright things or have patents on various products that we do, but ultimately we do everything with the goal of it being for the public interest. Interesting. Thank you for that. So let's say that you're working with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. You mentioned that you have meetings with them and from sort of an academic or national lab standpoint, I think of a meeting and I think of a bunch of researchers getting together with a whiteboard. Can you describe what a meeting is like at your institution? Is it sort of in the same thread where it's a little bit laid back, just people with a whiteboard, or is it more formal, like sitting down at a table and people in suits and government? So one of the things I love about MITRE actually, and I've worked for multiple companies since I finished grad school, MITRE in particular has appealed to me because MITRE is both kind of a laid back environment, but also still pretty academic. And that includes the way we're kind of expected to interact even with people at the government levels. Usually when we're interacting with people at the government level, we're interacting with people who also have graduate degrees in science and technology fields. And so it can get pretty deep into the jargon sometimes, very much a place where whiteboards are acceptable and people carry around, you know, whiteboard markers so they can be ready to go when the conversations get to that level. But ultimately, we're there sometimes to, at the same time, handle some of the details of technology and science that maybe those folks at the government level are kind of rising above. And so sometimes we do kind of have to scale it back and just say, okay, we're geeking out. Just let us geek out in private, and then we'll continue with the answer, and we'll kind of up-level the explanation to you. So sometimes it kind of goes both ways. That's really great to hear because I think there's a lot of folks out there that are looking for academic-like jobs, but they don't necessarily want to stay rooted in traditional academia. Yeah, for sure. I definitely resonate with that. That was my experience working for other companies. I ended up feeling like I was missing academia, but I wasn't really looking to go back to academia for like a hardcore job with an academic institution. But the companies I was working for didn't really care about anything that was seriously academic. And that frustrated me. So I was super excited when I landed a job at MITRE. Ah, so these other companies and you're hinting at some past life experience. Now that we know <laughs> what MITRE is, how about now we step back and tell us the story of how you wound up at a place like MITRE? 
Okay. I have two degrees in aerospace engineering, both from the University of Maryland, College Park. And after I finished grad school, I got a job working on simulations in the general field of ballistic missile defense, which was pretty interesting. A good fit for my skills. I found in grad school that I really enjoyed writing simulations and kind of working out ideas of science and aerospace engineering from a simulation perspective in particular. I wasn't really the sort of person who kind of felt like I needed to go design an airplane and be like putting bolts into airframes and so on in order to kind of work out my engineering ideas. So I started off with a job doing detailed simulations of missiles, working with a company that did super detailed simulations for the Navy on the Tomahawk cruise missile project. And that was really interesting. But eventually it came time to kind of move on from that. But I had found that by that point that scientific simulations were really just the thing that I loved, partially because it allowed me to work also with code. And I had just found that I was one of those engineers who loved working with code. Through friends and networking and so on, I ended up learning about this job in the civil aviation community. So kind of leaving behind military stuff entirely. And that was how I ended up at MITRE. So that was kind of my first dive into the civil aviation research world. And like I mentioned before, MITRE is much more academic place. And so MITRE was all about kind of like research and what are the big research questions and how do we make from the civil aviation perspective, how do we make civil aviation safer or more efficient, which is actually really most of what I work on is kind of on the efficiency side of things. That's kind of the long story or the, maybe the short story of how I ended up at MITRE. Tell me more about writing simulations. So I have written a simulation, I called it the dinosaur dilemma, and it has a little world of dinosaurs and avocado trees that are going around eating and attacking and killing each other and getting diseases. And I'm pretty sure that probably most of our listeners are familiar with simulations. They may be familiar with, you know, seeing a simulation online in a web browser for COVID modeling or something like that. But I have a feeling that the simulations that you're referring to are much different than that. So maybe you could take a dummy or a simple example and walk us through how you do that. Yeah, sure. So yeah, simulations is kind of an overloaded term, isn't it? So there are lots of different things maybe that come to people's minds about what a simulation is. And so what I don't mean here right now is anything that has graphically immersive interface. It's not like Minecraft or or whatever else kind of gaming world kind of examples that might come to mind. In this case, I'm really talking mathematical equations. In aerospace engineering, there are core equations that are well-known that describe the motion of an aircraft. And these equations of motion can be used, put into code to propagate an aircraft through space and time. So it becomes this kind of 4D description of where an aircraft has been and what it's done. And it takes into account different sorts of properties that could relate to the specifics of the aircraft, taking into account pilot behavior, And actually, some of the work that I do intersects with that. So whether or not a pilot is paying attention to an air traffic control command that they're given, or if there's some delay before they actually implement that air traffic control command. So those sorts of things also come into simulations. Now there, we're not talking so much about equations of motion and partial differential equations. But there we're really talking about statistical models because usually human beings are modeled according to some sort of statistical distribution. And so then we bring in statistics into our simulations also in order to produce, you know, that kind of human normalization effect in our data. 
the output of a simulation for me and for most of the researchers that I work with, the data that comes out of the simulation, where the aircraft was when it took off, where it flew to, where it landed, what time it landed maybe might be important, how it interacted with weather, let's say. So weather could be atmospheric parameters like temperature. So all these things end up being the output of a simulation. And then that data then is analyzed for whatever various things we're looking at trying to study. So we don't typically use visualizations except for like scientific visualizations that are more like graphs. And that's how we really look at the data. That makes perfect sense. So for these simulations, for you personally, what is most exciting or fulfilling about them? Is it the fact that you're optimizing something or trying to capture the best model of some real world entities or seeing what happens at the end or maybe using the data after or something else entirely? On the one hand, the thing that I get jazzed about is working out these aerospace concepts in code. I like seeing simulations of aircraft, and at the same time, I get to learn also about air traffic control and pilot behavior. And this also has become really interesting to me. Frequently, we have to take into account the human element. And so I've ended up getting deeper into understanding what it is that air traffic controllers do. I mean, I've ended up interacting with pilots. Pilots become, in some cases, one of the humans that we study in our simulations. And it's been interesting also to learn about their world, to basically to learn about their domain of expertise and then figure out you know, how to model their behavior in a way that's worthwhile in our studies, in a way that's realistic. From the aerospace engineering side of things, that's what I really love. And then big questions that we ask, in fact, one of the things that I have been working on for multiple years now, you might think of it as like adaptive speed control for aircraft. So linking aircraft together in a technology sense and saying one air to one aircraft to another, if they're both eventually going to be landing on, landing on the same runway, the command might be, hey, aircraft, you need to be behind that other aircraft and land on the runway 75 seconds after that aircraft lands on the runway. And there are lots of really interesting research questions to ask and answer in trying to accomplish that sort of thing. But then I also love the code side of the world. And so this is actually kind of like where I become maybe more like a research software engineer, because like I mentioned, I found that I loved writing code in grad school. I still love that. I still am routinely writing code on a daily basis to do some aspect of my job. And I really enjoy digging into that whole world and learning about best practices of software engineers and kind of like wearing the hat <laughs> associated with all these things, routinely working in a language like Python, which allows me to sift through loads and sift through tons of data and produce really interactive graphics. And so that's actually the stuff that I get jazzed about too, is the opportunity to write code, to dig into analyzing things and doing it efficiently from a research software perspective. And then that brings me to bringing it all together as like kind of in one package where I start to think about reproducibility and reproducibility of scientific results is a pretty big deal to me. Reproducibility becomes a thing that also kind of gets me jazzed, is working hard to make sure that everything we're doing has a technology path that if we went back and redid it all again, we would get the same answer. All these things together are what get me jazzed about the work that I do. Wow, you've mentioned four things. Before we talk about reproducibility, which is also something that's near and dear to me, I want to kind of highlight these four things that you mentioned that 
I think I've seen sort of a, a pattern across many RSCs that I've interviewed, even when they're working on very different things, different environments, different problems. I've noticed these four things that people generally say, for example, for why they love being an RSC. The first is this basic act of programming. You said it yourself, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years, but you still really love sitting down and writing C++. The second is something about either learning about or interacting with people. A lot of RSCs, I think, would be very happy kind of just sitting with their code, but life is a lot more interesting when you have other people to talk to or learn from, or in your case, even study their behavior. The third thing that you sort of mentioned is this kind of systems understanding where you take all of these different components and you put them together and you synthesize them in a way that requires a lot of different expertise. And that also leads to the, the last thing is just this ability to wear many hats. Like you don't want to just be an RSE. You want to do a little bit of data science. You want to have a little bit of interaction with people. And I, I think those four things are what makes jobs that are like research software engineers so appealing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. I have to ask about reproducibility because I actually did my thesis on reproducibility. Do you use containers? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I've been building a Docker container earlier today. The answer is though, yes, sometimes, but it's kind of hit or miss. In my world, containers haven't necessarily entirely taken off. The question we have to ask is, what would we use them for? The simulations that I write require a lot of data and that can be a ton of data that can't really be sitting on any computer or device. So the data is available to me across a networked file system. And when we start talking about introducing containers to applications that need access to all of the data that is sitting on a networked file system, it actually becomes super challenging. IT folks get uptight because our containers might need root access. And they're like, yeah, we're not sure we're ready to give you root access. And sometimes the containers, if we wanted to run our stuff locally, it might just literally not have access or the amount of resources necessary to access all of the data that is necessary to run the simulations. The answer, I guess, to your question, do we use containers is yes, sometimes, but not all the time. Yeah, I was curious and asked that specifically because I imagine that you might even have hardware that even wouldn't warrant, you know, running a container. And if you're yeah. sort of looking for rootless, you know, containers that don't require root or a daemon, you could consider looking at Singularity. There's now Podman, although I'm not sure if it would work with a shared file system like that yet. I haven't actually yeah. tested it. There's Charlie Cloud, there's Shifter. There's a lot of these containers that have been developed. Actually, they're kind of old now and crusty and old news, but they've been developed more for sort of the HPC use case that might be interesting. Yeah. What then does, you talk a lot about reproducibility, what then does reproducibility, aside from doing something in a container, mean for you? For me, what it means is using best practices from the software engineering community and starting with kind of like the basics. Try not to write any scripts or any code that is not under configuration management. And then from there, I would layer on versioning. I think versioning is actually super important to this whole question of reproducibility. I would say it means that at first. And then traceability in terms of, so I work with a team of developers. We actually have kind of different backgrounds and making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of like just writing good commit messages and 
making sure that we're tracking our issues correctly. All those things that have been done for a while in the software engineering world has taken a while to matriculate, I suppose, into the, the scientific computing world. Bringing all these things together and then documenting results associated with any of the software that's been written. And then I also have become a huge fan of testing of all software or as much as possible, especially for anything that's like a scientific algorithm that's been developed. In my opinion, it always has to be unit tested and those tests need to pass. So once all this data has been produced, and let's say there's a good traceable path between the code that was written, the version that was used to produce the data, and now we've got this data, and hopefully even the data is living in some sort of a repository, and there's change management occurring on the data itself, so that if it's being scrubbed, taken out of some raw format, and put it in some other format, all of that is being tracked as well. And then for me, it's also about producing things like Jupyter Notebooks that pick up that data, look at it, produce maybe even some templated kind of graphics that show that the data is reasonable and has been manipulated correctly. To me, it's kind of the whole scope of things. And in my research project right now, that's actually just coming to an end, I'm actually trying to produce some Jupyter notebooks that would be publicly consumable. So they'd actually be delivered along with final reports and so on that allow kind of a deeper dive into the data and allow end readers to actually see what I was doing when I was loading the data and looking at it and why I think it's correct or useful to the research question that we're trying to answer. That sounds very robust and the paper would definitely be cool. I remember reviewing a paper once where the entire analysis would be run and the paper generated all the figures just by like running one command. I thought it was so incredibly awesome. And it's, it's really a shame we don't yeah. see more things like that. Although granted, you would need to use some derivative of the data. You wouldn't be able to run something on like a supercomputer, for example. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned issues, commit messages, documentation. How important is open source software for your work? So certainly at a fundamental level, open source software gets used a lot. A lot of the simulation code we roll ourselves, so that's not open source stuff, but we look for opportunity to put into the open source domain what we can. And I've got some examples of that where I've been able to do that in my own work. And then again, on the data analysis side, then it becomes a huge factor relying on open source libraries, especially for data analysis. This is actually what really attracted me to the world of Python for data analysis is I realized that it just had a super active scientific community of people who were writing libraries that did really interesting things and things that were super common to just scientific data reduction tasks. And it really made me want to launch into the world of understanding Python and how I could apply it to all of my data analysis processes and workflows. And so at that level of my work, open source code is super, super important. Then there's also the ability to produce open source software. And I do engage in that world also for the MITRE Corporation. I'm one of the admins of our GitHub presence and some of the work that I've done has been open sourced. And so there the goal is just to kind of give out to the world and it's usually a reduced code set from what we've got internally, but it's a, it's a feel free to run this. These are the unit tests that come with it, and you're welcome to use it in your own work if you want to, and please post issues and interact with us in that open source way that's equitable to everyone who has internet access. 
I totally agree about the importance of open source. I would even say that some libraries are so familiar to us that we almost don't see them. So, for example, if you're a researcher and you write a paper and you use standard libraries for Python, so NumPy, maybe you use Jupyter Notebooks, you may not stop to think, huh, maybe I should cite this. Maybe I should figure out how I can give back. It's become like Linux. Who is going to cite some DOI for Linux in a paper? Probably no one but it's like this core essential thing. (laughs) So we're coming up on time. I want to be respectful of your time. So I have just a few more questions. When you aren't running simulations, what do you like to do? Outside of professional activities, have a family. We like to go hiking and camping and that sort of thing. I guess nothing else is coming is really specifically coming to mind, actually. This would be a hard question for me, too, because what I like to do in my free time is just like other programming projects. So if someone's <laughs> like, hey, Vanessa, what do you like doing on the weekends? And I'm like, oh, the same thing I like doing during the weekends. <laughs> yeah, I have been working on a little Raspberry Pi project recently, but I try not to get too deeply pulled into that. (laughs) Yeah, you may never come out. So I have a question now that's, I don't know if you'll know the answer, but it's something that I've always wondered. Is it true that airplanes purposefully go slower to save fuel? (laughs) So I guess you're talking about like passenger aircraft going from destination to destination with lots of passengers on them. Yes, very slowly. (laughs) Right. So I would say it's not true. There are a lot of strains to the way that they fly and so on. But you're right that fuel savings is a massive part of the commercial aviation world. And the airlines in particular are hyper-focused on how to save maybe even 2% of their fuel usage per flight because that adds up actually really quickly if they're flying thousands and thousands of flights all over the world every day across their entire airline. They might fly perhaps slightly slower, but the reality is there are a lot of other constraints on them that involve things like air traffic control commands, where air traffic controllers will tell them they have to slow down. And there are actually plenty of times when they would rather keep going fast, and the air traffic controllers are doing those sorts of things for the purposes of safety or to keep the traffic organized within a particular airspace and so on. So it's not necessarily as simple as the airline has just decided that they will fly slower in order to save fuel. Here I was terribly worried that they were reducing the the options for snacks on the airplane to reduce weight to save fuel. (laughs) Maybe. maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, in a lot of ways, they would actually rather get their passengers on the ground faster. So if they can kind of stay high in altitude and fast, then that's actually a pretty optimal place for them to fly. So last question, is there anything sort of surprising or interesting either about airplanes or flying that you've learned that the average person like myself would not know? I found it really interesting when I started interacting with pilots more. I studied aerospace engineering from a deeply scientific perspective, and I was all into like the fluid dynamics and the way that you could model aircraft. I started interacting with pilots. I began to realize that they had like a totally different perspective on the world than I did. And it was like a really practical perspective. They have like all these rules of thumb that they can calculate quickly how to do that instead of like going through all the math. So I found it really interesting that pilots just had this kind of down to earth perspective on how to go about aviation. Commercial airline pilots are a really interesting subset of humanity. There are people who are hyper-focused on procedures and do things by the book, and they literally memorize procedural manuals in order to do their job. 
And you have to be a really kind of specific kind of person in order to even become a commercial airline pilot. Because, and it affects like the way that they go about their job because it's such a safety critical job. You have to be a person who just does everything by the book and who doesn't get flustered if something goes wrong and who knows exactly what all the procedures are. And I just ended up finding that really interesting to intersect with that kind of segment of a different vocation and to see how different those people are, even though we're both kind of paying attention to aviation, but actually in completely different ways. And I began to realize, yeah, I'm really more the sciencey person. I never would have done been good at all if I had actually like tried to go be a pilot because I'm just not that kind of a procedural person. That's really interesting. I didn't know that about pilots either. And it makes me question a lot of different careers and jobs that I have some impression of, but I'm probably totally <laughs> wrong about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that that's true, actually. <laughs> so, Stuart. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on RC Stories. It was really fun to hear about MITRE and simulations and learn a little bit about airplanes and pilots. I really appreciate your perspective and being a part of our community. Oh, thanks, Vanessa. This has been great. It's been super fun to talk to you, and I appreciate all the work you're doing to get these stories out there. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. All right. Bye.